Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. I'm inclined to agree with George Whitfield that Hark the Herald Angels Sing, written by Charles Wesley, is probably one of the greatest hymns ever written. I enjoy it. I hope you do too. Would you mind taking your Bible and join me in the book of Genesis? Go to the very beginning and turn to chapter 12. And we will be reading a little bit of chapter 11 today, going into chapter 12. And I want you to think about something as you're turning over there. When you think of the term blessed, or when you think of being blessed, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Now, how many of you out there today would, you would consider yourself pretty blessed? How many of you would say, yeah, I'm pretty blessed? How many of you would say, you know, I'd really love to be blessed a little bit more? Let's be honest. How many of you would say that? Oftentimes, when we think about uh, blessings and blessedness, oftentimes I'm afraid that our mind automatically gravitates towards materialism. The question then becomes, well, all right, if you consider yourself blessed, or if you want to be blessed maybe a little bit more, what is it that you mean? What is it that you're looking for? And oftentimes I'm afraid that we think about blessedness, we associate that with materialism. But listen today, I'm a gospel preacher. I'm one who proclaims Christ crucified, Christ risen, and Christ coming again. And I'm here to tell you that there is a blessedness that is far beyond anything that money can buy. Listen to the words of our Lord in Matthew 16. He says this, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his own soul? Now there are many who perhaps consider themselves blessed because of something that they've gained. But the Bible tells us that we are blessed because of something that has been given to us. Not something that we've gained, per se, something that has been given to us. And that is, we have life. And the way that we have life as Christians is by us placing our faith in the Son, in this Jesus. I read a story just the other day about a 47-story skyscraper in Spain. Now, if you've been keeping up with the world economy, you know that Spain has really been struggling in their economy for a little while. And so they built this skyscraper 47 stories up as a mark of their prosperity. They were telling to their country and telling to the rest of the world that, hey, we are on our way climbing out of this hole of debt. But there was one problem with the skyscraper. There was no way up to the 47th story. The builders forgot to build the elevator shaft. So here they had this wonderful skyscraper, beautiful from the outside, but there was no way up to the 47th story. Now listen carefully. The Bible tells the story for true blessedness. The Bible tells us what it means to be truly blessed. And listen carefully to me. True blessedness is life. There's no life outside of God. Remember what Jesus said? What profit is it? Those of you who equate blessedness with something that you can gain, some kind of materialism, what profit is it if you should gain the whole world, but yet forfeit your own soul? You see, I'm afraid that the living that most people consider living is not living if their life is outside of God. You see, this is our message to the world, a message of blessedness 
through faith in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Isn't that what we proclaim? We teach our children this very early on. It's one verse that you probably kept close to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would never perish. But what would they have? Everlasting life. That is, they would have true blessedness. Now, let me tell you a little bit, catch you up in in case you've been absent just for a little while at Oxford. We've been studying Matthew, and we've made it all the way into the fourth chapter, and and this is Christmas, of course, and so we're doing things a little different, but we're not too different. This is Advent, this is the, the season where we celebrate the arrival of the Savior, and so what we've been doing is we've been taking the first chapter of Matthew, as Matthew's been describing the way that the Christ would come, describing the way that Jesus was going to come, the way that God was preparing the world to receive the King. And uh, last week, if you remember, we looked at the creation account. And this week, the reason that you turn to Genesis chapter 12 is because I want us to move ahead a little quickly. We can't go through the whole Bible in four weeks. Well, I guess we could. No, we won't. But uh, we need to just move uh, ahead sort of purposefully so that we will then look today at God's covenant with Abraham. So let's read the Bible beginning in chapter 11 and verse 30. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson. And Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. And when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Would you pray with me this morning? Our Father, here we come again. Another time, another week, another opportunity for us to open your word. We are grateful for it. Another opportunity, Lord, for us to open our mouths wide and ask you to fill not just our our ears and our head, but to fill our hearts with wonder and awe of your majestic glory. Be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I hope that you noticed something as we read Genesis chapter 12. I hope that you noticed How many times that word bless, blessedness, and all the rest are repeated? Now, here's something that you need to remember whenever you're reading the Bible. Whenever you read the Bible and you see something that's repeated, you need to mark it down. Because if God repeats something, He wants you to know what it is that He's repeating. God wants us to know something. He wants us to know that He intends to bring blessing into the world. But it's not just blessing into the world, it's blessing into the world in a certain way. And the way that he wants to do it is through a man. More specifically for our purposes, not just through a man, but through a man who then has a people. But pay close attention here. 
Think about that. Here God says, I'm going to bless you and all the world's going to be blessed through you. If God's saying that He's going to bless, then this probably means that by the time we have gotten to Abraham, just 12 chapters into the Bible, that probably lets us know that there is not blessedness that's going on in the world. And that's exactly what we're supposed to see. Things, by the time we get to Abraham, are not right. Things have gone awry. Things have gone astray. And so, by the time we get to Abraham, the world does not have the blessing of God. Now, think about that term blessedness just for a minute. We've heard that word before, haven't we? If you were to go back to Genesis chapter 1, and you can do that right now, you can go back and see, because we're going to flip back and forth a little bit. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, you'll see that same word, blessed. This is the word barak in Hebrew. This is that word that is repeated. If we were to look from chapter 12, we would see a streamline of this blessedness. God's preparing the world for His purpose. But what did God do with the first couple? He blessed them. And then He told them something. He told them to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. And then He told them to rule over the earth, to have dominion over the earth. But what's the rest of the story? Genesis chapter 1 yields to Genesis chapter 2, where He gets more specific tells them that there's this tree that they're not supposed to eat, and on the day that they eat of it, they will die. That is, they will remove themselves from the blessedness of God. But, you know, Genesis chapter 3 happens. The serpent comes into the garden, infiltrates the garden. Man did not obey God, and instead of acting in His blessing, they chose to disregard, which resulted in curses. So let's look quickly at Genesis chapter 3. Look at this. This is the reason why God tells Abraham that there needs to be a blessedness on the earth. Man disobeyed, and as a result of disobedience, he forfeited the blessings of God and instead brought cursing, not just to himself, but into the whole world. Look at it here just for a moment. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, look at this word. First time we have it. Instead of the word blessedness, we have this terrible word, cursedness. Now, how many of you this morning would consider yourself cursed? How many of you want to be cursed, right? We want to avoid that at all costs. Because we understand just by our intellect that whatever it means to be cursed is something that we have an aversion against. Whatever it means to be cursed is something that we want to avoid at all costs. So the result of man's sinfulness, where he was to enjoy the blessings of God and let that blessedness be carried out into the rest of the world, he then has invited a curse upon himself and on the rest of the world. Look at it in verse 16, the woman I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You shall desire before your husband. He shall rule over you. And then in verse 17, God says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you. You shall uh, eat plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You were dust, and to dust you shall return. And I want you to see something. Something that hopefully you paid attention to. Something that I skipped over. In the midst of all of this cursing, look how quickly God is to get to blessedness. In the midst of all the curses, look at Genesis chapter 3 and look at verse 15. He says to the serpent, He's cursed of you above all the animals. And then He says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, this seed of the woman is going to bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
in the midst of curses. You have to see this. The Bible is so quick to run to grace. The Bible is so quick to run to blessedness. The Bible is quick to run to grace. In the midst of all the curses, things are disastrous. But God, grace is greater. And He marks a way, even in the beginning, even as He's dishing out curses, even as He is disciplining us for our disobedience, He tells us that there is hope. He marks a way for what was lost to be restored. And by the way, what's the way? What's He going to do? The way for blessing to be restored is through one who's coming, who's going to be born of a woman. This is the reason it's so important for us to get to Isaiah chapter 9, where he talks about, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And that brings us to our first point this morning, and I really want you to write this down because if you believe this truth and get it in your hearts, then this will really change everything. Listen carefully. Number one, God's grace is greater than your sinfulness. His grace is greater than your sinfulness. Now listen carefully. Genesis chapter 3, it tells this story. It tells a story of the pervasiveness of sin. Oftentimes I'm afraid that we don't believe in sin. At least we don't really act like we believe in sin. We don't really believe in the holiness of God, the goodness of God, but the Bible tells a different story, especially in Genesis. There is a pervasiveness of sin. When man fell from the grace of God, listen carefully, it was a radical fall. It touched not only every fiber of his being, it touched everything that he touched. It touched every part of creation. Look at the way that the story is in Genesis chapter 3. The fields were supposed to produce myrtle. Now they produce thorns and thistles. Supposed to produce roses. And now we have these thorns and thistles. Man was intended to have fellowship with God. And they were intended then to fill the earth with the purpose of God. But what did they do? They traded the crown for chains. They traded tulips for thorns and thistles. And man who was created for life tasted the bitterness of death. Sin spread through mankind like a plague. And look what happens here. I want you to see this. It isn't too long that we have this story in chapter 4. Look how quickly this happens. In chapter 4, Adam knew his wife and she conceived and she bore Cain. And it wasn't long if you read the story in chapter 4 that you see that Cain, the son of Adam, kills his brother Abel, the son of Adam. The intentions of the heart, if we go forward to chapter 5, we get into chapter 6, we see that man begins to multiply on the face of the earth. And so much so that in chapter 6 it says that the Lord, my spirit, will not always contend because the desire of their hearts, in verse 5, was great in the earth. And every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. And so what did God have to do? Right in the very beginning part of the Bible, man who was created to enjoy this fellowship with God, man was who was created to enjoy this blessedness of God, he trades all of that for curses, and as a result, everything begins to turn disastrous. Brother kills brother, and people are murdering people in, in chapter 4, and then all of a sudden we get to chapter 6, and here God is going to wipe out the entire earth except for a couple. He killed almost everything that lived because of sin. But I want you to notice this. Undergirding this entire story is a current of grace. God looked at what He had done, His works of His hands in Genesis chapter 1. 
He saw the whole picture and He still said that everything was good. Listen carefully. When God said what He said in Genesis chapter 1, He looked at the works that He'd made and He said that it was good. He meant it. It's not as if all of a sudden He wants to regret or take back His mind. He wants to say, no, no, I didn't really mean that. He knew that the fall was going to happen before He created mankind. The Bible says in Revelation that the Lamb is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? It means that when God chose to create in the way that He chose to create, He knew that when He created, He was going to have to send His Son to die. And the beautiful part of the story is is that He still chose to do it anyway. So he looks at the world that he's created and he says that it's good. Now listen carefully. He's not necessarily talking about the, the cancer and the, and the death and the dying and the heartache. Those particular things are not good, but the way that God intends things to be and His plan is the best plan. And I'm here to tell you today that I believe that and I believe in, in so much of the sovereignty of God that I believe that if there was a different way, a better way for God to do it, He'd have probably done it. But He didn't. He chose to do this also that He could show His love towards us. Listen carefully. God said that it was good. And God's plan for man would be fulfilled as He set out to restore the earth and to restore its state of blessedness. And so what does God do? I love what He does. He comes to individuals and through individuals, what does He do? Then He brings forth His plan to redeem. He brings forth His plan to restore. And so by the time we get to Abraham, what do we see God doing? We see God continuing doing what He said that He was going to do. And what did He say He was going to do? He said that He was going to bless the world. Let's look closer in the life of Abraham. I want to show you this undercurrent of grace here just for a moment. Let me show you this. We are introduced to Abraham. The Bible pays very close attention to who he is, and we want to know who he is. He's from the Ur, the Chaldeans, and all the rest. Why is all that important? Well, the Bible is showing us this undercurrent of grace. It is showing us this purpose that God has to save. And so, let me just make some connections for you. This is going to be fast, so you listen closely. Make a few notes if you want to. Adam and Eve had three sons. The name of the three sons were Cain, Abel, and Seth. Now, of course, we know the story that I just told you that we just looked at in chapter 4. Cain killed his brother Abel. And Seth was born to Adam and Eve. And then Seth had a son. Seth's son was named Enosh. And the son of Seth is important because Genesis chapter 4 and verse 26 says, if you were to look at it, it says that at that time, during the times of Enosh, the son of Seth, it was at that time that people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, that's important. Beforehand, uh, we have this outside of the garden, and here we have this one named Enosh, who was, uh, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, Seth was the sixth great-granddaddy of a guy you probably are familiar with. His name is Noah. And Noah, guess how many sons he had? Three. Noah's sons were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, don't forget who Noah was. Uh, We could have spent time with Noah, but I chose just for our purpose not to look at Noah, but although we could, who was Noah? Noah was the one in Genesis chapter 5, was the one who was, he was from the cursed ground, and the ground was supposed to receive relief from Noah. But what was God doing? You remember the story when the rains fell and the floods came, and 
God saved Noah and his children. What in the world was God doing when he was doing all that? Yeah, of course, he was judging the earth, but how does Noah fit into it? What is God doing? God was keeping hope alive. In the midst of all of this brokenness, in the midst of judgment, there is this God who has purposed that he is going to save. He is keeping hope alive, keeping the hope of blessedness alive, and through his preservation of Noah. And all the nations, if we were to go to chapter 11, all the nations of the earth can trace their lineage through the three sons of Noah. Now this is where it gets really good. Shem, son of Noah, was the eighth great-granddaddy of Abraham. And here's where it gets really good. Abraham's daddy, who was a son of Shem, who was a son of Noah, who was a son of Seth, who was a son of Adam. Guess how many sons Abraham's daddy had? Yes, three. Look here, it says that they were Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, you see what God's doing? He's taking us and He's showing us that God has a purpose. And His purpose is coming about. I oftentimes think that we are so guilty of just disregarding the Bible, reading the Bible just like it's any other book. We don't pay special attention or get to see the connections in the book. I hope that after a service like today, you're able to look at your Bible and really believe what it says, that you know, we have, as Southern Baptists, we really have made it our mark to say that we believe that the Bible is the infallible and errant Word of God, but I wonder how many of you, when you read it, treat it like that. I wonder how many people, when they preach behind the pulpit like this one, treat it as that. Well, hopefully you'll be able to see the connections in the text. All of this is important. So, why is all of this important? Here's the reason. God has a relentless pursuit of glory. The Bible says this story. The people are lost. They're scattered. But God has a plan. And aren't you glad that He has a plan? Aren't you glad that His grace is greater than your sinfulness? Aren't you glad that He didn't let what it was that made a distinction between you and Him, what it is that brought division against you and Him, aren't you glad that He did not allow your sin to inhibit Him from offering you salvation? Think about it just for a minute. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Listen to me this morning. God has made up His mind. He has determined that He can't stop loving you. He has made up His mind that He will pursue you to the ends of the earth if He has to. And the reason why? There's one reason. Because He loves you. Because He loves you. You see, He created the world so that we would enjoy fellowship with Him. And here's the good thing about God. Hopefully you believe in the God of the Scriptures. Whatever God sets out to do, He's going to do. Your will, my will, my plans, all are secondary to His. All fall subordinate to who He is. What God sets out to do, His purpose will come about. Now, I don't know about you, but in a world full of darkness, in a world full of desperation, this is good news. Because God was determined to save. And listen carefully. God will save. There is nothing that you and I can do about it. He will receive honor and glory from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue, from every people, He will 
fill the earth with those who are ready to worship and obey Him. And one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of Him just as the waters cover the sea. You see, listen carefully. You may fail, but He never fails. His grace is greater. And so what does He do here? I love in chapter 12. What's He do? He calls an idol worshiper named Abram in a foreign land. And then He tells him His plan to bless the world. You see, I think that oftentimes we think about Noah. And we think that Noah was a righteous man before God came to him. Or we think about Abraham. He's somehow justified because he's doing things right. No, that's contrary to everything that the Bible says. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not as if God plays favorites and he looks and says, you know, you're doing a little bit better than this one over here. No, Abram, he was an idol worshiper. He was in the middle of this land, separated from the goodness of God, outside the promised land. And then God said, Abram, I'm going to come to you. My grace is going to extend to you. Not because you deserve it. Not because you're a head taller than all the rest of them. Because you're a filthy, rotten sinner just like the rest of them. But that's not going to stop me from having my purpose. And So what does God do? He goes to Abram, this idol worshiper, in a foreign land, and he tells him his plan. Look at this. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country. You see who took the initiative in the whole endeavor? God's the one who took the initiative because only God can do this. And so, where do you and I fit in the whole scheme of things? We, listen carefully, are the benefactors of His love. You and I, receive this love. We didn't deserve this love. It's merely given to us. Yes, God's grace is greater than all of our sin. And number two this morning, His grace calls men to respond. That's what He does. He calls you and I to respond to His goodness. Abraham didn't seek God. God came seeking him. The grace of God, what did He do? He found the restless heart of Abraham and He called him to follow Him. The message that He told Abraham, if you think about it, it's too good to be true. Look at what happened. He simply tells Abraham to go. He didn't tell him where. He just told him to go. And He would show him. But what did God tell him? The same thing that He tells us. He may not tell us where or how, but He tells us what. He told Abraham that if you would follow Me, I'm going to bless you. If you'll follow Me, because of your obedience, it's going to result in blessing. And if you think about it, the whole story of Abraham, and I encourage you to read it. It's pretty long. It's from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 27. If you read it, it's filled with suspense. Before Abraham even receives his call in chapter 12, we know something about Abraham is that he and his wife have tried to have children before. And they were unable to have children. And then God comes to him and says that I'm going to make your name great. And in you, I'm going to make you a great nation. And all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. But Abraham's wife is, is barren. She can't have a child. And one of my favorite passages, if we were to flip over just a minute in the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And constantly in the story of Abraham, God comes and He deals with Abraham. Because He knows that this story is really too hard to believe. He comes to Abraham and in Genesis chapter 15, it's almost as if Abraham and God are having a conversation. It's almost as if Abraham is agitated with God. 
He's received this promise. He's gone. He's done all of this. But yet he comes to God and he says, God, I can't even have a child. He says, look at verse 2. He said, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I'm childless. And then he says this. He says, The heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And look at this. And Abraham said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. In other words, he's not even my own child. Where's this promise, God? And I love verse 4. And this is the way God deals with you. This is the way He deals with me. He remembers that we are nothing but dust. And He chooses to speak to us kindly. Look at verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then look at verse 5. I love this. And he brought him outside, and he said, look towards heaven and number the stars. And then he says, if you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And don't miss this. One of the most pivotal passages in the entire Old Testament. Verse 6. And he believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Everything that Abraham faced was totally unbelievable. But if you think about it, everything that we hold dear as Christians seems unbelievable. You ever thought about what it is we believe? Ever thought about how strange it must sound to the rest of the world that, that we believe that the dead are going to rise again? You know how crazy that sounds? Sometimes when I go to funerals and I preach funerals, I think about how, how crazy people must think that I am, especially when there's a large funeral there and there's a lot of people, that, and I know that many of them don't go to church and don't have a chance to hear the gospel. I look at that body and I say, one day this body is going to rise again. If you were to hear that for the first time, I wonder how strange that must sound. See, it sounds unbelievable, doesn't it? It gets better than that. Christians, one day we believe that there's going to be this king who's really king of the earth, who he's going to come back, the eastern sky. We're talking about the, the place that the sun rises. One day, in front of a sunrise, the eastern sky is going to split, and all of a sudden this guy's going to appear riding a white horse, coming to establish his kingdom on a renewed earth. That sounds pretty strange, doesn't it? Sounds pretty unbelievable. It's just like God coming to this man who can't have a child and saying, you know what? You're going to have a child. And this child, all the world is going to be blessed through Him. And if you don't struggle with that, if you're okay to believe that here this morning, all the strange things that we say about Christianity, there are no doubt some here today who struggle with believing the Gospel. Believing that God loves you not based upon anything that you can do, but based upon everything that He has done. You struggle with that. And I know struggle's real. Because we're always looking for ways to justify ourselves when the Gospel says, come to the end of yourself and look to Jesus. The Bible is a book of belief. The Bible calls us to believe not something because we have seen it, but the Bible calls us to believe in something that we've heard. In the economy of the Word, the world says seeing is believing. The Bible says hearing is believing. Think about it. How was the world made? The world was made in the very beginning of pages. What do we see? Do we see anything other than the Word of God speaking? 
What did Adam and Eve have to do to fulfill their purpose? They only had to do one thing. They had to listen, believe, and obey. What do you have to do this morning to receive everlasting life? You have to respond to God by believing what He has said. Look at what God's doing through Abraham. You see what He's doing? He is seeking to set the world and put it back on track. He is reordering the world that went astray through unbelief by belief. Think about it. Here, Adam is and God says, the only thing you have to do is listen to my voice and obey what I say. Don't eat of this tree. What does he do? He eats of the tree. Then all of a sudden he comes to Abraham and he says, listen Abraham, I want you to go. I'm not going to tell you where to go, but I'm going to bless you if you go. And the next thing we read in Genesis 12.4 is that Abraham went. You know what he's doing? He's believing in God. You know what God's doing through Abraham? He is setting the course of the rest of the world that went astray through unbelief. He is putting the world right back on track. And the way that he's doing it is through belief. Hebrews chapter 11, I believe it is, says that if we're going to please God, we have to have faith. The way that we have faith is to believe that there is a God who exists. And He rewards those who seek Him. Listen, I love the way that Paul interprets Genesis in Romans chapter 4. Listen to what it says. And he's looking at Genesis chapter 15. And remember what the Bible says in Genesis 15. And Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And listen to what Romans 4 says. Paul goes through and he talks about Abraham and he says, this is why eternal life, this is why our whole faith, this is why it all depends upon faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all the offspring of Abraham. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. And by the way, Paul says, Abraham, he's the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of the God whom he believed, who gives life to the dead. And then pay attention to this next part. He calls into creation things that do not exist. You see, before Jesus came, we didn't really know what we were to believe in. But now that Jesus has come, John says, we have beheld the glory of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then John says, we have seen His glory. And this is exactly why Jesus has come. He has come that we may believe in Him and in believing in Him, we may have life. We may have blessedness. Listen closely. The way that the world is blessed is through Jesus. If I were to ask you this morning, I'm Many of you perhaps are familiar with the story of Abraham. It's so indoctrinated in the way that we think. If I were to ask you this morning, who was the son of Abraham? Many of you would probably think, well, Ishmael and Isaac, and Isaac was the true son. If I asked you who was the son of Abraham, you would probably say Isaac. And you'd be right. But only partially right. Who is the son of Abraham? Well, Matthew tells us in chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. When I became a Christian, maybe like many of you, I was raised in church, and I read the New Testament before I read the Old Testament. 
And so by the time I get to the Old Testament, I'm like, oh, well, Genesis chapter 11, Sarah, Abraham's wife, is barren. She can't have children. I'm like, well, she must have had a child. Jesus is the son of Abraham, so obviously he had a son. Who is the son of Abraham? Who is the way? Who fulfills the purpose that God had for Abraham? Who is the son? God says in Genesis, I'm going to give you a son, and he's going to be the one to bless the nations. How is the world blessed? Jesus is the way the world is blessed. Jesus comes as the promised Savior so that He can restore blessedness to the world. And if we were to go this morning, if we were to flip to the end of the story of Abraham, we would read these words in Genesis 25. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last. And he died a good old age. An old man full of years. And he was gathered to his people. Now think with me. If blessedness means life, then what hope is there for you to put your faith in a dead man? A dead man can't give you blessedness. A dead man can't give you life. But you know who can? You know who can? A man who has tasted death for all men and from that death come back to life. You see, Jesus has tasted death for all so that all who have faith in what He says will live. And what does He say? Remember who it is that's saying this. It's not just some guy who lived in the past. It's a guy who right now lived, died, is risen, seated at the right hand of the Father. He is at the right hand of the Father right now, alive and living. And what did He say? He said, believe on Me. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe. That your situation is grave. But His grace is greater. Believe that you are a terrible sinner. But believe that He is a wonderful Savior. Believe that the way that the world receives life again is by the One who has undone death by His very life. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we love You. We thank You so much for undoing death. For making us alive in Christ Jesus. Father, we love You. We pray that we would learn what it means to have life in You. Father, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know You, anyone here today that doesn't know what life is, maybe they're thinking they're blessed because of all the things they have. Father, I pray that we would learn to think about blessedness because of everything that has been given to us. Everything that we've received through placing our faith in the Son. Father, I pray this morning that You would call men to repentance and that they would respond to Your free grace and that You would save this morning whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info 
at oxfordbaptistchurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.